text is about. Today's sermon topic is marriage and divorce. We're going to read from Mark 10, 1 through 12. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because of your hearts, your hearts were hard, that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Steve. Beginning of summer, let's talk about divorce. Um, one of the disciplines of going through the Bible verse by verse, uh, it's called expositionary preaching, is that you can't skip the parts you don't want to talk about. It's all in there, and here we are uh, in chapter 10, um, talking about divorce. So how did we get here? Well, we're going through the Gospel of Mark. The New Testament begins with four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they are the record of Jesus' life and ministry. They're all based on the um, reminiscences and the um, oral tradition. Most of them were uneducated, illiterate uh, fishermen. Their stories, the things they remember about Jesus, were written down, and that's where the Gospels came from. And the Gospel of Mark is based on Peter's memory. Peter was the uh, uh, lead disciple. His faith was the faith on which Christ founded his church, famously. And his, you know, Peter was a fisherman. His memories are the, perhaps the most vivid, the most direct. He doesn't try to explain anything. I saw Jesus do this, and then he said this, and then he did this. There's no uh, attempt to gloss, no attempt to interpret it's just a direct eyewitness. And we've seen how in the Gospel of Mark, uh, there are 16 chapters in Mark, and you see here that we're just beginning chapter 10. The first half of the Gospel is Jesus gathering his disciples, training them, and uh, becoming public in Israel. He travels around Israel for three years. And his basic message is, repent, the kingdom of God is here, and I am the king. And he is confronted by the leaders of Israel. Crowds come out into the wilderness to see him. He performs a series of miracles until we get to the end of chapter 8 into chapter 9. And that's where Peter confesses, you are the Messiah. That's the Hebrew uh, word for the Greek word Christ. It means the anointed one. It means the one sent by God. And with that confession, when Jesus is finally recognized as who he really is, the whole gospel changes. It pivots. Instead of teaching the crowds, instead of performing miracles, Jesus turns south, 
the Galilee is in the north of Israel, and he goes down the Jordan Valley towards Jerusalem, where he's going to go to the cross. And so here, when we see verse 1, Jesus then left that place and went into the re region of Judea. He is leaving Galilee in the north, and he is heading south down the Jordan Valley. The Jordan drains the Sea of Galilee, flows south to the Dead Sea. And right around where the Dead Sea begins, that's where Jerusalem is, up the hill there. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. We've seen he spent a period of time alone with his disciples in the wilderness, avoiding crowds, avoiding people, teaching them intensely about what they needed to know to prepare them for the cross. Now he's coming back into the inhabited regions. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So the Pharisees, along with the leaders in Jerusalem, are sort of the power elite of Israel. And as Jesus is approaching them, coming south, they, they um, notice that he's attracting crowds. They come out to challenge him. And this is a challenge when it says, came out and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? This is a trap. We saw at the beginning of the gospel that John the Baptist was beheaded because he challenged the king. Um, his wife had left her first husband and had married Herod. And John the Baptist challenged that new relationship, and for his trouble, he was beheaded. And so by asking this question, they're trying to put Jesus into an impossible position. Either he challenges uh, divorce, as John the Baptist did, or he acknowledges that it's okay, in which case the people who respected John the Baptist, because he followed the law, he would lose the allegiance of the people. Lose his head, lose the people. That's the choice that they think they, they put him in. What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Moses, of course, was the founder of the nation of Israel. When God brings Egypt, uh, Israel out of Egypt and slavery, he brings them to Mount Sinai, where God, through Moses, gives them the law, which is then the foundation of Israel and the nation of Israel uh, as God's holy people. So Moses is the lawgiver, the founder of the nation of Israel. And by, by mentioning him, Jesus is going to their source of authority. The Pharisees are teachers of Moses' law. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. Back in that time and place, in fact, in that whole region, women had no rights. They were the equivalent of slaves and children. They couldn't own property. There was no legal process. There was no police force. There was no protection for them. And if a man got tired of a woman, he just kicked her out. And because she couldn't own property, she couldn't take care of herself. If she was kicked out, she would lose her name. She would be rejected by her family because she would have dishonored the tribe, and she would have become desolate. 
It was a hard thing to do to somebody. It was basically condemning them to abuse, making them pray to anyone who wanted to come after them. They were completely unprotected. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. In the, more, in the law of Moses, there is a provision for women who are divorced. Before the law, it used to be that you were just kicked out. In fact, it's still notoriously true in Islam that if you say, I divorce you three times, the marriage is over. But all the way back 2,000 years ago, before that, in the nation of Israel, it was the law that the way that you divorce somebody was not just to kick them out, you had to give them a written certificate of divorce. That means you had to involve the elders of your community and the, the elders of your tribe. And that certificate of divorce was protection because it protected the woman's reputation. If she went back to her family, her tribe, or if she got remarried, she couldn't be accused of adultery because she had a legal certificate of divorce. So this was a way of protecting women. It was giving them a legal status even when they weren't under um, the protection of their husband or their husband's name or their husband's tribe. But it was not, there, there are different ways of thinking about the law in Israel. There are different kinds of law. The foundational law was the Ten Commandments given to Mount Sinai, which you can think of as the moral law. And the moral law is still applicable to us. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. But then there was also a ceremonial law, a kosher law, halakhic law, the law of pots and pans, how you deal with food, how you deal with... Um, the life of Israel. And Jesus says that he fulfills that law and it's no longer applicable. And then there is a practical law, and divorce was a practical law to take care of the issue of what to do with abandoned women. So divorce, back then, is like jail or court orders or parking tickets. It's a human innovation, not ordained by God, part of the practice of Israel as a practical way of dealing with a practical problem. Notice what Jesus does. Verse 6. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So to understand what marriage really is, Jesus is saying, you have to go back to the very beginning. In fact, before the fall, back before the law of Moses, back before the foundation of Israel, back before the fall and the various inventions and habits and patterns of human societies, back to the very beginning. That's what Genesis means, the beginning. And back to the reason that God created human beings in the first place. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So Jesus here is quoting Genesis. This is Genesis uh, chapter 1. So right at the beginning, right after God creates heavens and earth, God creates human beings. And we read this. Then God says, this is Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, 
let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So this is Genesis. Let us. It's the first glimpse or hint that God is not a solitary figure, a solitary personality. This is the first glimpse of the Trinity, that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is this eternal community, a set of relationships, a family, so intimate, so self-sustaining of each other and respectful of each other, the three become one, distinct yet in a perfect unity. Make mankind in our image. This is the Hebrew word image, sleslum. I can't even pronounce it. Sleslum. I think it's like that. Anyway, it means likeness, representation. In fact, it is the same word that is used for idols. So when human beings make statues and, and pictures and images of God, you can think of God doing the reverse. Human beings are God's image made by him, but not dead idols, but filled with life. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Male and female together are created in God's image. That is, male and female together are God's representation, God's representative, God's steward, God's ambassadors. It is the way that God is present to the created world, together. And their job is to rule over, to be stewards of, to have dominion over God's creation. The world, heaven and earth, were created by God and human beings, male and female, were put in to creation. God created them in his image to be his representative, to be his steward over the creation, to rule over it, to take care of it, to have dominion. So God, this is Genesis 1.27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. That is the reason that God created human beings, and that's the reason that they are male and female. They come in two varieties. Why? Because God is not solitary. God is a relationship, fundamentally. Verse 7, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. So just as in the Trinity, three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, become one in this spiritual unity, the Trinity, so too do male and female human beings become one a spiritual unity. And that is a representation of God to creation. This, by the way, is the theological rationale for not calling 
a legal homosexual relationship a marriage because it does not represent God as the union of two distinct persons. By the way, that is the only argument I am aware of about homosexuality. So what does this mean? Marriage is not some legal contract. It is not some human invention. It is a covenant. Verse 9. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. It is not a human invention. Human institution is not subject to human law. The union between a man and a woman is not like limited human legal contracts. It is an unlimited divine covenant. And to understand marriage, you need to keep in your head the idea, the separation between a contract and a covenant. What is a legal contract? A legal contract is a limited liability. You write down what you will do, and you write down what you expect the other party to the contract to do. I will do this and no more, and you will do that and no more. If you make a legal contract with a landlord or a business, or you lease a car, or you borrow money, or you hire an internet provider, it is a limited relationship. It does not give them access to your private life. It doesn't allow them to enter your home, tell you what to do with your kids, tell you how to live or what to wear or what you should spend your money on. A contract is a limited relationship. And the purpose of the contract is to delineate what the responsibilities of the two parties are. A covenant, by contrast, is unlimited liability. When you enter a, com a covenant, you are responsible to an unlimited extent for the other. Think of your children. What happens when your children run off and vandalize a car or steal something or do something terrible? You're responsible. What happens when somebody that you are married to does the same? You are responsible. Marriage is covenant because in the West, it is based on this Christian idea of unlimited liability that traces its origin back to creation, just as Jesus is saying here. So in a divorce, Children, money, houses, alimony, child support, savings, retirements, every account are all at stake because it's a covenant. You have unlimited liability to each other. You have to take care of each other beyond the marriage, even when it ends, because it is based, marriage, on the idea of covenant, not contractual law. By the way, it's insane when you think about it that people just get married without any lawyers because they are binding themselves to the most legally intrusive and burdensome contract in the world, unlimited liability. And yet, where are the lawyers? Where are, they, where are the people telling you, don't do it? Prenuptial agreements, by the way, are designed to turn a covenant 
into a legal contract. You sign a prenup to limit your liability to the other, to limit risk and loss if it all breaks up. So do you have this idea in mind? Covenant, unlimited liability, unlimited access to the other person and them to you. And it's very, very different from contractual liability. By the way, I think that this, and this is my personal opinion, so don't, this isn't biblical authority. I, I don't think that the state, the non-Christians, the society understands this idea of covenant. It doesn't make any sense to non-Christians because the world is based on the idea of law, limited liability. And clearly, you know, the state has an interest in protecting the rights of people and protecting and raising healthy children in a relationship. And so a legal framework is appropriate. But it can and should be a legal framework. What are the rights and responsibilities of each party? so that it can be adjudicated by law, by the state, by non-Christians. Non-Christians, consenting adults of any sex or type, can enter into any legal relationship they want. Legally defined, legally limited, regulated, and adjudicated by the state. No problem. But the covenant of Christian marriage should be left to the Christian church and to Christians because that's where it originates and that's where the idea belongs. Only crazy Christians should give themselves without limit to the, or the ordeal and the rapture of covenantal marriage because nobody else has thought it through. Nobody else understands it. Nobody else has an example and of course, as, as we go on, we're going to see the example is God. Nobody else can understand it because nobody else has the relationship with a Trinitarian God. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now, if, if this was the only thing that we had, what you'd learn from this is you'd get divorced, but then you had to stay single. Otherwise, you'd be committing adultery. But actually, Jesus talks about this uh, in the other Gospels. And so our church, the, uh, the Presbyterian Church in America, has come up with three appropriate reasons to be divorced in a way that allows you to get remarried. Kind of like the certificate of divorce in the law of Moses. The first is adultery. That is, sex with somebody else outside of marriage. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Sexual immorality Immorality, that is sex outside of marriage, is an appropriate ground for divorce. Because the word divorce means to cut off. And remember, if you're one flesh and you become one flesh when you have a union with a member of the opposite sex, 
If you break that union by having sex with somebody else, that relationship is broken, is defiled. Our church would also include desertion. Implicit in the marriage promise is that you are present in an unlimited way to somebody when you marry them in a covenant. You are present to them and you offer them all that you are and all that you have. And so if you run away, if somebody deserts the other, they have broken that commitment, that covenant. In fact, that was God's charge against Israel. And violence and abuse. Implicit in the sacrificial nature of the covenant to take care of the flourishing of the other. If you are violent, abusive, destructive towards the other person, then that is grounds for a biblical divorce in, the, in our church. And one thing I would say, uh, this is based on practical experience. Different churches, different countries, different regions of America, different states have different ideas about divorce. And um, one thing that I have learned is, God forbid, but if it does happen that you are in the process of a divorce, get the church involved. You know, Moses talked about a certificate of divorce. That was something that was given by the elders of the village or the tribe. If you go to another region, another state, another church, some people, and you've been divorced, some people will accuse you of adultery or say you shouldn't get married again based on what we just read in Mark. I've seen this happen, by the way, uh, in the city in New York and within churches in our network. All you have is your word. All you have is your response. You're on your own. Somebody accuses you of, of adultery or not being biblical or defying the gospel. There's nothing you can say or do unless the church is involved. If you go to the church and you ask the church to rule on your situation, to understand it, to seek reconciliation, to adjudicate whatever terms you come to, and to make a determination as to whether it was biblical or not. If the church does that, then in your future, if somebody comes after you, you just say, go talk to my church. Go talk to my elders. They're the ones that have told me that this is a biblical divorce and I can get remarried and I can move on with my life. That's just practical advice. This is one place that the church can really stand behind you and support you and protect your reputation. Well, there's not much gospel in here, right? Divorce is terrible. It breaks the nation, the, the, the nature of God's creation and the covenant that he establishes through human beings with his creation. Where is the sweetness? Where is the gospel? Where is the grace? in what we are been talking about. So let me finish by talking about that. One thing that you have to know is that God is a divorcee. God creates a relationship with humanity, a covenant. And then, through Abraham, and then this is the fall, of course, then we have the story of Abraham where God makes a covenant with Abraham and makes a promise that through your descendants, Israel, I will bless you and bless the world. The relationship will be restored. And most of the Old Testament is about that relationship. 
The trouble is, Israel is constantly chasing after other gods. Baal, Molech, a whole bunch of fertility gods. If you read the Old Testament, it is full of the story of that. And God gets fed up. He says this in Jeremiah. The Lord said, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree. This is where the balls and the idols to the fertility gods were. She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. God makes a covenant with Israel. They are his holy people. He is their God. And Israel is faithless. In fact, if you read the uh, prophets, you see that one poor prophet is asked to marry an adulterous woman just to demonstrate to Israel what that looks like. Israel breaks the covenant, and God gives Israel a certif certificate of divorce, ends his relationship with Israel. But then God makes a promise. This is at the end of Jeremiah. I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Instead of tablets of stone and a broken covenant, God will establish a new covenant with Israel, which will be a matter of the heart. And how does he do that? He does that with Jesus. In the New Testament, we read this. This is Hebrews. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. The first covenant was an unlimited covenant. Israel broke it. But God remained faithful to his relationship with his people. See, this is why the covenant, why the idea of covenant makes no sense unless you understand Jesus, unless you understand God. A covenant has two sides. Both make promises to each other of unlimited liability. If one side breaks the covenant, then if you read the story of Israel, the, the cost is death. They, they cut the covenant by literally cutting animals in half and saying, if anything bad happens, if we break the covenant, we will be like these animals. We'll be cut off. And yet when God makes that covenant with Abraham, only God walks between the animals. You should read the story. It's remarkable. God takes responsibility for both sides of the covenant. God makes himself unlimitedly liable 
for the sins of his people. He takes responsibility for everything that we do wrong. Both sides of the covenant. And that's why God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, becomes a human being, becomes a man, so that he can take responsibility for the human side of the covenant. In a moment, we're going to go to the Lord's table. What are we seeing here? It's a feast. It's the family table of God. But on that table, we see bread and we see a cup. The bread is Christ's broken body on the cross. The cup is Christ's lifeblood poured out. Why? To pay the cost of the covenant. Human beings are not up to the task, and therefore, they need Jesus on their side, their side of the covenant. You know, when, uh, when people get married, they make these crazy, beautiful, ridiculous promises to each other. Love you for eternity, and goodness knows what. There's a beautiful moment in every marriage where the couple turn to each other. This is sin right here. They turn to each other, and they hold each other's hands, and they look into each other's eyes. And they make these promises. And as a symbol, as a sign of their unbreakable promise, they put bands on their, on their fingers. This is my vow. This is forever. You're mine, I am yours. We're going to go through life together forever. And that is a ridiculous thing for imperfect human beings to say. We are fragile, we are fickle. We are prone to wonder. Stuff happens. But there's a truth in that promise. And the truth is that if God is present, if you are a Christian, then God will take responsibility for your promises together. And even though life may seek to tear you apart, and unfortunately sometimes it does, God remains faithful. Nobody is lost. And so those promises are really God's promises to us. I've known you from the, before the creation of the world. I made you. This day, this union is no accident. God knows everything that's going to happen in your life. I have called you, called you both by name, names which are engraven on my hands. In Jeremiah, and sorry, in Isaiah, God says this. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. God says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. That's the promise. We can break promises, but God never does. And Jesus is the proof. We, our names, our entire lives, are graved on his hands by the cross, where he pays for everything that we do that doesn't live up to our promises. And in his baptism, what is God saying to us? You are now in my family. You bear my name. You are mine, and I am yours forever. It doesn't matter what you do. 
It doesn't matter what the world does. You're now part of the family. Because he fulfills the covenant, the new covenant in his blood. That's the promise. Some of you have experienced divorce in your families, in your life, and you know what a brutal business it is. It's a death. Flesh gets cut off. But remember the promise. We are never abandoned by God. He is always there. He is fulfilling our promises, and he is ensuring that we will never be divorced from him ever. That's the gospel. That's where to find the grace. That's why we worship him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that though we are feckless, though we oftentimes betray each other, you are faithful, you are just, you are good. Lord, we ask that as we come to the table this morning, you will meet us there, that you would fill us with your grace. You would fill us with the security of your promise. You, who remember our name forever, would be present to us again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.